The idea is to really connect all of the issues, humanity, human health, animal welfare, deforestation, the climate crisis, the energy crisis, fast fashion, toxic beauty. It's all connected. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. Joining us today on the episode is this social entrepreneur, Sonali Fugueras, founder and CEO of The Green Queen, Eco Warehouse and SourceGreenPackaging.com. Sonali was born in Hong Kong to French and Indian parents. She is a graduate of University of Pennsylvania and has a background in digital marketing, publishing and sustainability. Now, with over a decade of experience in these fields, she has successfully launched several businesses centered around sustainability and organic products. In 2011, Sonali founded Green Queen, an award-winning media platform advocating social and environmental change. In the past decade, Green Queen has established itself as the leading outlet for alternative protein news. Their mission to shift consumer and corporate behavior through original content that promotes their belief that a circular economy, alternative protein, and the food tech revolution are the best way to advocate for global, social, and environmental change. In 2020, Green Queen Media was awarded the prestigious Best in World Special Awards Prize by the Holbar Sustainability Reports Awards for their outstanding contribution to raising awareness about climate change. Sonali is also the founder and CEO of Eco Warehouse, a sourcing platform for certified organic products and sourcegreenpackaging.com, the world's first marketplace for sustainable packaging with a mission to fight single-use plastic. She is also a veteran public speaker and industry expert, sharing her unique ideas on platforms such as Harvest Business School and TEDx. She was recognized on the Women of Power 2021 list and the 2019 Gen T list, which highlights 300 leaders and trailblazing entrepreneurs who are shaping Asia's future. Sonali is an advocate for social and environmental change, making sustainable wellness products and content more easily accessible. It goes without saying that Sonali is an impressive entrepreneur, and I'm incredibly excited to welcome her to today's episode to talk all things sustainability and business. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Sonali. Really great to see you and sit down with you. It's so great to be here. It's a real honor. The OG plant-based podcast. It's very kind of you to say thank you. Well, you know, I'm really excited to learn about all the amazing things that you've been up to in recent years. But before we do that, tell us your plant-based or vegan story. How did you discover this lifestyle and where did it all begin for you? Absolutely. For me, it was a little bit more of a circuitous journey. It all started back in the mid 2000s, I had basically been battling chronic health issues that were just not getting properly diagnosed and not getting the attention I think that they deserved. There was a little bit of what I now call medical misogyny going on. I have two diseases that are mostly affecting women and that don't have a cure and don't have kind of a pharmaceutical solution that, you know, companies can make money off. So it's sort of diseases that just get pushed aside and it involves nothing life-threatening, but a lot of daily pain. Um, so I have endometriosis and I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So they're both immune disorders. Yeah. They cause a lot of discomfort and it took many years for me to discover what they were. But so because I got no results and no answers from the medical community that I was constantly kind of told to, to go to, I ended up going down my own rabbit hole of research. And that's really where I learned about food being something that could heal you rather than just something that, you know, is amazing for pleasure, um, which is how I grew up with food. My mom is an amazing cook and would always say, you know, you can have whatever you want, but I'll make it at home. And my grandma is also, um, she was a very well-known cook in Delhi. And I just come from a food family, but I never looked at food as medicine or as a healing pathway. And so I started exploring all kinds of ways of eating to see if my symptoms would get better. The first time I really went vegan was when I did a six month journey into raw veganism. But at the time I, I hadn't really associated the environmental or ethical side of, of the argument or the lifestyle or the choice. Around that time, a few years later, I also got a dog. So for me, the dog is really where I started having in the back of my head this kind of, why am I eating an animal and keeping another one as a pet? I had always been someone that loved vegetables, so I'd always eaten a predominantly 
vegetarian diet, but every once in a while would, you know, have a steak or I, I really used to love sushi. Um, but I mean, most like sashimi, like just, I let raw, raw fish. Around 2011, I started Green Queen. It was a tiny little blog that I just meant to start because I had completely changed my life due to all this research. And I had started to live this life that was, you know, detoxed and all about health and all about organic vegetables and sourcing food with a lot of forethought and, you know, prioritizing local and shorter supply chains. And so eventually I just thought, well, maybe there are other people out there that might benefit from everything I've discovered to live this lifestyle here in in Hong Kong and Asia. And so that's really how Green Queen started. And it wasn't really meant to be a media company. And I, I didn't really have a plan for it. I just wanted to share information. It really, really pushed me into this constant journey of more and more research. I went down that path of, I was going to say rabbit hole, but I shouldn't say that. I went down this path where I just kept learning more and more about how broken our food system was. And I started reading the UN reports about climate change and industrial agriculture emissions. And eventually I I felt that it, it didn't feel right for Green Queen to continue to cover meat, seafood, and dairy. Because in the beginning, we would cover it, but from an angle of organic dairy or humane meat or sustainable seafood. And it just it just started to not make any sense to me. And it started to feel like those terms were a form of ethical washing, greenwashing. And so in 2016, I decided to become, you know, the first media in Asia because by this time we'd moved on, we weren't a blog anymore, we were media. And I decided, you know, we're just going to not do that. We're going to focus on the plant angle because let's face it, all these other foods are constantly represented in every other media. Around that time, I started to eat just less and less and less meat. And seafood was pretty, it was both difficult to give up because it was probably the one I liked the most, but it was easiest in terms of the ethics, because I've always been pretty aware of the slavery aspects of seafood. So I was able to give up most of that and red meat. And um, there were definitely a few things that were hard, maybe like bacon. Chicken was easy. I never was a really big fan. And then obviously, I will say it, it, it took a few more years before I understood about cheese and eggs. I don't think I was clear on how cruel and unethical those two industries were. I I genuinely thought, you know, what's wrong with eating an egg from a chicken that's like happy in his field, you know? And similarly with cheese, um, I didn't know that, you know, cows are forcibly impregnated and all of that horror. And um, I did this interview with Jill Robinson from Animals Asia. And she talked about how she'd been a vegetarian for 20 years and had recently turned vegan. And she started talking about all these issues and what she'd discovered. And I guess that was it. I just, I I really had trouble getting that out of my head. And so then went towards that direction. I, I won't say that I haven't slipped sometimes. You know, my mom is just an amazing baker. And once in a while, I might've had had one of her cake slices or one of her cookies, but in my heart, I, I don't want to consume animal foods. And I, I really do believe that something has happened on a really deep consciousness level to me. And I think it's something that is not studied enough in this world. I think because there also aren't just enough vegans doing on, on research projects, but I do feel that when you stop consuming living beings and and flesh, I don't know, there's just a change inside of you. There's definitely a shift in consciousness. I absolutely agree. And your story is so common. Obviously, you know, such a great kind of story to hear about your journey and your, you know, creating your media platform. There's a lot of similarities there, you know, about as, you know, working on PBN and, and the more I worked, the more I learned, the more I learned, the more I became aware. And, and it's sort of one of those things of when you start to explore the reality of the food system, 
it becomes more and more terrifying and more and more horrifying. You know, we're living in this world where human beings have proliferated the entire planet. We're everywhere, almost 8 billion of us. We have tripled in volume, obviously, in, in, in population in, in my lifetime, in 40 years. And it is insane to realize that we will triple again and our species is just accelerating to what feels like an oblivion. Now, the counterculture to this lifestyle is the sort of eco-awareness. You've described yourself as a committed eco-warrior. Is that right? Yeah. And, and you know, I just, I just want to understand what that means to you because sometimes it feels like we're up against a tsunami. You know, the behavior that of our species, of our own species, seems unstoppable. But firstly, what does an eco-warrior mean to you? And, 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 and also, how do you feel personally about what feels like a huge, huge challenge ahead of us? Well, I'll start with the second question first. I often say this when I speak on panels um, or in interviews, but I would be extremely depressed to a very dark level if I wasn't doing what I do. So part of my work is a survival mechanism because I am someone who is not completely able to suspend disbelief. Denial is not something I comprehend. And so once I know, I know. And once I know, I wanna know more. And I've always been like this. Are you freaking out about climate change right now? Because I am. I freak out about climate change every day. I think about how hot it's going to be in 10 years. We may have to move. I think about all the climate refugees. I think about water shortages. I think about food shortages. Did you know that bananas, coffee, and chocolate are all at risk because of climate change? That's my breakfast every day. I think about climate change when I wake up. I think about climate change when I go to sleep. I keep coming back to you. Why isn't everybody else freaking out about climate change? Climate change is gonna affect every single one of you in this room. Maybe you don't believe it, maybe you know about it, but there's no getting around it. Our lives are going to fundamentally shift because of climate change. We can do a lot to stop it, but some of the consequences are already happening now. It's hotter, there's less water. We're losing certain animal and plant species. The world is literally changing because of climate change. And yet, most of us in our everyday life, we're not really thinking about it, and we're certainly not acting on it. When I was a really young child, I wanted to be a social worker. I don't speak about it a lot, but part of my journey has involved working in the favelas of Rio, the, the slums of Chile and, and, and India. That's almost what I gave over my life to. So I do also want to say that our food system is horrifying on so many levels and for animals too, but also for humans. The violence towards other humans is, is terrifying. And so I think that was my first cross with injustice and the animal injustice came later. But I do try to also always remember that vegans do sometimes eat chocolate that is made with child, child labor. And so that's why I try for Green Queen to be intersectional. The idea is to really connect all of the issues, humanity, human health, animal welfare, deforestation, the climate crisis, the energy crisis, you know, fast fashion, toxic beauty, it's all connected. And I really do think that that is something that differentiated us a long time ago. And that just comes from me. I am a very intersectional person and I don't understand things in vacuums. I think it also comes from the fact that I'm not one nationality or one ethnicity or one culture. So I don't easily identify with one label and one word. My mother is a Punjabi Hindu who comes from parents who had to leave Pakistan at partition because we weren't Muslim. My father is Italian and French. They met in Tokyo. I was born in Hong Kong. I went to university in the United States. I spent three years of my high school life in Singapore. I then lived in South America. So I don't belong to one land 
for one identity. And that has infused my intersectional approach to all of this. And what I found when I started Green Queen was that environmental issues and health were quite disconnected. And we really put them together. I guess eco-warrior, it's a it's a marketing term to some extent. I mean, I'd rather call myself Green Queen than an eco-warrior, but in the end, we're human beings on this planet. We have a duty of care to our environment, which includes wildlife, to other beings, which includes humanity, and to ourselves, which includes our health, and to that, the future of other generations, which I don't believe we should be stealing from, but we are. Yeah, we really are. And, you know, I really wanted to touch a bit more on uh, your ancestry, and I can really relate to that as well. I'm also like you, a mix of many cultures, uh, Spanish and Portuguese, South Asian, North African, Italian, all kinds of different cultures. Uh, And I don't over-associate with any one culture. I consider myself a human being and that I'm part of this earth. And when you talk about eco-warrior, you talk about green queen, you know, an identity that you've crafted for yourself because you want to be able to identify with a sort of personality that stands for something much more important than, you know, where we are from on the planet, because it's kind of irrelevant, right? When we're dealing with all the issues on earth today, we need to focus on the big picture, which is our home, which we all share. Right. There's this there's this poem which I love, which uh, I believe has been considered not historically correct, but it is an interesting idea. And, and it says, when the earth is ravaged and the animals are dying, a new tribe of people shall come onto the earth from many colors, classes, creeds, and who by their actions and deeds shall make the earth green again. They'll be known as the warriors of the rainbow. It's obviously really beautiful. It's been questioned historically about whether whether it came from an old African-American prophecy or not. But the notion that people such as ourselves, who are a mix of many tribes, you could say, that, co- that come together to sort of fight for the future of our species is such an vital and important message because at the end of the day, nationalism can be very toxic. It can be very dangerous because it creates this separation between, well, you're Spanish and I'm Portuguese, you're Catalonian and I'm Spanish and we can't be together, you're Catholic and I'm Protestant. And it has created, it's created so much division in our world. When it comes to sort of standing for this message, being a green queen, what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? Like, how do you live your life? And your what is your sort of personal philosophy, really, around around this identity that you've created for yourself in this in this movement? The biggest thing I believe in is uh, actually to to consume less. Whenever I go on panels and I get asked what's the number one thing people should do, I say buy less stuff. Like, don't buy anything for a month except food. See how that get, how far you get. So. I think number one is just getting out of this excessive consumption bubble. And I think that applies to food in a way too, because we excessively consume food, right? Then obviously I do think it's around reducing animal products. And I say reducing because I do like to be inclusive and to welcome anyone to feel that it is within the realm of possibility for them to participate here. As much as it doesn't feel that way to me, the word vegan can alienate people. I think much less so now, but it, it, it can, it's unfortunate. And it goes back to everything you just said, which is that one identity always creates an other. And then we're getting into, you know, critical literary theory and I'm back in my uni days. But in the end, the idea is to couch your language in a way that makes people feel like they can and they could. Number three is limit your waste. Like think about everything you use and where does it end up? I run Green Queen, but I also have a new business, for example, sourcegreenpackaging.com, which is all about fighting the plastic waste crisis and offering solutions for businesses. And waste is a huge part of the story. I mean, just The other day I was reading that some activists believe that the plastic waste crisis is on par with the climate crisis. And we must remember that plastic involves extracting fossil fuels, which is a violent and oppressive 
that our whole economy revolves around. All of us, no matter where we live, no matter what we do, no matter how old we are, all of us, we're humans, we need to eat. We might not all be interested in fashion, we might not all care about video games, we might not all be into sports, but eating is something that we do multiple times a day, every day, and we need to do it to survive. So it is the most impactful way that we can actually make a dent in this crazy climate crisis. We human beings, all of us here, we want to help. We want to do something for climate change, but we need it to be easy. We need it to be accessible. We need it to be enjoyable. We need it to be a part of our everyday lives because we're busy worrying about our today threats. And we all have our own personal today threats. Packaging's an interesting one because you're talking about balance and talking about being aware of, of the truth behind what's going on in our world and being part of this movement is about revealing the truth, right? We see the problem, we see the plastic all around us. But the reason, one of the biggest reasons, which many people don't realize, is the reason there is so much virgin plastic, so fresh plastic, is because of the oil industry, because it's a very, very profitable industry. Obviously, very excited to hear that you've started a new business. You know, it's, I'd love to hear more about that. And how are we ever going to deal with the problem? Because again, like this is climate crisis or the nature crisis, as we're now calling it, the plastic crisis is again another tsunami you know how, it, it seems almost unsurmountable but how do you in the face of creating a new business and obviously trying to tackle the problem how do you remain resolute and positive through what seems some sometimes like an, an impossible mountain to climb well again i mean it is an impossible mountain to climb but i could do nothing or i could try to climb it so i think that's how i see life right now on the green queen side and on the source green packaging side if anything, the oil companies are undergoing a crisis because we are turning away from oil and gas for energy. And so they have to find new ways to use their extractions, right? So plastic is actually only going to get bigger. So yes, let's start with that very depressing fact. There will only be more plastic. And being that plastic is a very useful material in many ways, something that we must, you know, it's like you can't lie about the fact that to some people steak and bacon tastes great. You can't lie about the fact that plastic is very, very convenient. So I think we do need to tackle the convenience mindset. I mean, we are in a world where it wasn't enough to have 30 minute delivery. Then now it's gone to 15 minute delivery. Soon it's going to be five minute delivery. We want everything and we want it now. And plastic is part of that story. Meat is part of that story, right? Overconsumption is part of that story. And so the root of the problem is that story. Welcome to the Humanities Impact Test Site, where we visualize the impact of us humans on our planet. Today, we're testing the impact of the plastic bottle. We're going to find out how many plastic bottles we produce globally and what that number looks like in real time. Let's see it. Wow! We produce about 20,000 bottles per second. That's one million bottles after just one minute. What you see here are 20,000 bottles being added to the pile every second, showing how many plastic bottles we produce in real time. Not the best day for a run, I guess. Oh, straight on the face. And to think that only around 9% of this gets recycled. The rest is burnt, ends up in landfills, or drifts around in the ocean. And this continues every minute of every day. Do we really need that many? Well, that was our test for today, folks. Lovely. Oh, no! 
is still coming! It's our attitudes, right? It's not so much the plastic. That's what I say to people all the time. Plastic isn't evil. Plastic is an incredible invention that has allowed us to change the way we live and eat and produce products. We create 380 million tons of plastic every year on the planet, and much of that ends up in the oceans. But it could be reclaimed, it can be reused, it can be turned into bricks and buildings and benches and knives and forks and there's all kinds of things that could be used with plastic and creating recreated with plastic it's all about our mindset about let's figure out how we can create solutions rather than just living this instant lifestyle where everything is instant all the time instant relationships on tinder and instant products on amazon and instant music on spotify you know we we've primed a, a whole generation of people to just always be expecting everything on demand obviously that's not like that for much of the planet. Many people live on Earth in, in abject poverty where they don't have that and they have to struggle. And if they did have a plastic bottle, they'd probably cherish it and reuse it and reuse it and reuse it and, and it'd be an important part of their, their lives. I think the main message is particularly in the sort of, you know, in, in the developing world, developed world is taking things for granted. You go to the, to the kitchen, you turn on the tap and there's water. You go to the switch in your bedroom and you turn on the light and there's 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 light, there's electricity. We take it for granted, don't we? We just assume that all the systems and machines all around us are just going to keep delivering the energy, keep delivering the water. But here in the UK, we're in the midst of an energy crisis. The, the power prices in this country are now, they are going to double. The average family is going to pay £700 more a year for electricity because there's not enough because we're overusing it right and this mindset is is embedded in our society but behavioral change is a big part of of the conversation for both of us like we are on a mission to get people to think and to change their behavior what are some of the ways in which green queen and, and you've touched a little bit about the history of green queen in the beginning of the episode but I'd love to hear a bit more about how Green Queen functions as an organization and how you disseminate information in a way that connects with your editorial directive, which is, you know, expanding the minds of people. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your methods and, 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 and what you believe when it comes to changing people's behavior through media. Sure. So the first thing that we're very upfront about is our agenda, which is that we are what I call impact media. So I don't know, I, I coined this term like many years ago. I think now more people use it, but essentially the idea is just like there's impact investing and impact business, there's impact media. And it's media that is looking to get you to, to have a fundamental shift in, I guess, values and, and thoughts. We do this in this in this thing in the three-pronged manner, which is that we we say that we inform, we inspire, and we empower. So the informing part is the news where we're telling you the issues, what's going on, what the problem is, why is the climate crisis a problem, and what do you need to know? The inspire part is where we showcase founders, companies, NGOs, organizations, activists who are creating solutions, and that's hugely inspiring. And then the last part, the empower part is we're giving you tools, guides, resources for you to take action on all of this. So that's kind of the journey that we're hoping to facilitate for the readers. We do believe that impact media does create social and environmental change through giving people a new kind of framework. On one hand, it's like, well, we eat too much meat and industrial animal agriculture is just messed up. But on the other hand, it's like, well, here are all these companies that are offering you a solution to eat meat without the damage. And it can be as simple as that. And here's the story of this, you know, this one lady who, you know, I mean, her mom had cancer and so she changed her whole life and she figured out that, oh, if you quit meat, it's also better for your health. And so here's how she created a solution. And that it's going to create a touch point with some of the readers. You know, I think I, I, I talked about this in my TED talk, but I, I really do feel like there are all different doors that someone could open to connect with this journey, which is to become closer to your own health, humanity's health and the planet's health. And for some people that 
starts with fitness. For other people, it might start with fashion. For other people, it will start with food. For other people, it will start with energy. For other people, it will start with, I don't know, ESG initiatives at work. But everyone has a door that they open at one point that it that connects with them. And then again, getting back to the intersectionality. If you start with fashion, but then suddenly not, you're not just buying secondhand clothes, you're thinking about maybe you could do zero waste food shopping. And then from the zero waste food shopping, you start thinking, well, maybe I can lower the carbon footprint of my meal by reducing animal products, right? And then eventually you start thinking, wait, what about the whole ethical side of my life? Then you start looking at that. Uh, then maybe you think, oh, you know, I, I would no longer ever buy a pet. I would only adopt a pet. And, so, you know, so little, little switches that lead you to a new space or community or solution. And then that leads you to another one. And everyone's on a different journey and with a different timeline, which is why I never want to exclude anyone or talk down to anyone or judge anyone. Um, the idea is really to remain this safe place of inspiration, information, empowerment for these little nudges and changes that propel your journey towards, you know, eventually you're this zero waste, vegan, compassionate, happy being that is maybe starting your own media company or your own business. And, and it has happened so many times that readers have gone on a journey and, and told me, you know, come back and said to me, Oh, like I changed my life after I started reading green queen, but it took time. Wasn't the first newsletter. And that goes back to what you were saying about instant gratification and instant everything. And no, like you can't say to someone, you have to be vegan and zero waste tomorrow. You're just going to overwhelm them if they're coming from a different place. It's a real difficult balance because obviously when it comes to educating people, awakening people, enlightening people, as you say, everyone's different. People are very com complex beings with our own trigger points, things that turn us off, turn us on. And it can be really difficult uh, as a media outlet or platform. Uh, and I'm sure you can sympathize that we don't always get it right. There might be things that people don't like, the things that people love. People are more inclined to often give negative feedback than actually go out of the way to give positive feedback. Sometimes it can feel, especially on social media, when it's so easy to just drop a negative comment in the comment section. I want to talk a bit about the sort of ethics of media because you know, impact media, as you've described it, um, and or sometimes I would call constructive journalism, which is something I learned through uh, working with positive news, is that journalism is all about the where, why, who, what, when, often. It just often just sort of points to the problem sometimes, doesn't it? And people are like horrified or elated. But constructive journalism or impact media is about the who, why, what, where, when, and then what next? What's the problem? How do we fix it? Who's involved in fixing it? Is there hope? What's the theory of change, right? And I think it's so important to give people hope. It's all very well talking about all the horrific things going on in the world, but unless people have hope, people are very probably more inclined to throw their hands up in the air and say, you know what, we're all going to die anyway. What's the point of changing? We may as well continue to eat our bacon and drive our SUVs. Who cares? The planet's dying anyway. And we don't want that attitude. We want people to go, right, there is a problem. We've been warned about this. In the late 1800s, people were standing up in London talking about the damage to the atmosphere by industrialization of the, of the planet. And it has taken a century for us to finally wake up and realize that it's real and it's serious and that it's jeopardizing our entire planet. My theory is, is the reason it's taken so long is because we haven't had something like social media was able to disseminate knowledge and information so quickly into the minds of people that help them understand in a way. And that's ultimately what we're involved in. I don't know if, you, if you've seen The Social Dilemma, and I mention it on every second podcast, but The Social Dilemma on Netflix talks about how a study was done by Twitter, which said false information travels six times faster than true information. And that personally terrifies me because it makes me realize that we are up against, um, again, another monster. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked, is being measured. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. Exactly what image you stop and look at, for how long you look at it. Oh yeah, seriously, for how long you look at it. 
They know when people are lonely, they know when people are depressed, they know when people are looking at photos of your ex-romantic partners, they know what you're doing late at night, they know the entire thing. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, or what kind of neuroses you have, what your personality type is like. They have more information about us than has ever been imagined in human history. It is unprecedented. We're up against these monsters that are really, you know, like gargantuan in, in their size. I'd love to learn a bit more about like how Green Queen positions itself, you know, in, as far as ethics go, because editorially and being able to sort of function, we need to be able to have advertisers, we need to be able to run as media companies. You know, some people have said it can be editorially problematic if you're accepting money, if not you, but if, as a media platform might be accepting money from like, Nissan, you know, selling gas guzzling SUVs, but then at the same time, we're writing content about how we need to be driving less and using less fossil fuels. So there can be a, a real challenge between who we take our money from to keep going and then what we actually write about. Is this something that you've encountered or, or how do oh, you... Yeah. I have very strong views about this. I am going to be very honest and say that I don't think a lot of the media in this space is rigorous enough on this. I actually do think some of the media in this space relies on those kind of fake news mechanisms to propagate. But, you know, those are choices. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with needing to make a living off of your business. So I don't think we should vilify that in any way. I mean, the New York Times makes lots of money. In an ideal world, it would be a subscription-based model so that, you know, it's your readers paying you and, and you have full editorial control. But I do think that sponsored content has a space. Um, in our case, 95 to 98%, and most of the time it's 98, 99% of our content is editorial. So it is just decided by me, not by our advertisers. And I think if you are going to do sponsored content, you should be very upfront that it is sponsored content. So I do have a problem with sites that are not upfront on that. And that's a problem across the media. And it's a big problem in Asia. I mean, a lot of people here are not clear on the difference between editorial and advertorial. Um, I regularly get companies ask me for paid editorial, which I always have to explain to them is an oxymoron. It's just dishonest, isn't it? Uh, we have brands here, even in the UK, who say, can we pay you? But we don't want to disclose that it's paid advertorial right. because no, we don't pay for advertorial. And it's it's just blatant dishonesty. We have built a relationship with our audience. They trust us and they see us as credible and accountable. And if we don't disclose that something is ad advertorial, something's been paid for, that it's an advertisement, I think it, it really smacks of, not a criminality, because you're not going to be arrested for it but it's a mindset right but in the, U in the uk you have the advertising standards authority and you do have some you have regulation around this now is it enforced that's a different question but here in asia it's the wild wild west of ethics around journalism there's a lot of questionable content however i think that it's okay if you disclose i also think that you should be extremely careful about your advertising partners and so, yeah, I think you should not have a meat company as your advertiser on a vegan site, probably, unless it's, you know, Tyson Foods talking about how they've invested in Beyond Meat or something. But it, it really needs to make sense in terms of why they're appearing there. Um, I can tell you that there are a lot of categories of advertisers that I will not touch. I regularly get asked financial services, insurance, like it just, that's not really aligned with what we're doing right now. And we're just very careful about who we'll work with. And usually um, the idea is to have clients where it makes sense, where there may be a solution provider in the space, or, you know, there it's a company that wants to talk about their ESG campaign or things like that, where it aligns with the rest of our content. We're not going to suddenly start talking to you about random fintech, right? It has to make sense to the reader. In a perfect world, if you don't choose your advertisers well, you're alienating your reader and you're not getting good results for the advertiser anyway. So it makes sense to choose complementary advertisers and clients for the reader. I mean, a good advertisement in, in my view is one where the reader actually benefits from learning about it in the same way 
that you as a, as a media are getting paid for it. You know, and I think you see that with people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, for example, in, in their podcasts, right? They'll advertise things like Athletic Greens or uh, at some point maybe Peloton or whatever. And it makes sense because their podcasts are around self-improvement and, you know, self-optimization and self-actualization. So everything that they recommend feels like they've tested it and they've tried it and it fits with the general kind of direction of their content and their media platform. And I think that's when it makes sense. And, and, and I think, you know, we live in an increasingly noisy world. It's harder to keep eyeballs focused. It's harder to keep your audience engaged. It's got to go in that direction. You can try having, you know, irrelevant advertisers and, and, and crappy solutions for a while, and maybe it'll work for a while, but eventually you will not get the right results. You will lose audience credibility. You will lose audience engagement. And eventually those clients will come back. So it just seems like a bad business decision anyway. I don't want to say that impact media shouldn't make money because all media makes money, including regular old news media, like the New York times or the Sunday times. I mean, probably the media I'm most admirative of is the guardian because it feels like at this point, it's the only newspaper in the world that is factual and not owned by a billionaire family or a billionaire. It's owned by its audience. It's owned by the community. That's that's what I believe in. I, I agree. And I think that that's where accountability, credibility and transparency comes in. We have to be focused on the sincerity of the message, because if we're not, then why would anyone believe us? We're up against a Goliath of uh, of culture, of industry, and they don't care about us. They would see us fail tomorrow if they could, you know, as impact media and constructive journalism or however you want to frame it. You know, as we grow, we become more of a threat to the mainstream narrative. Class and I, our original strapline was disrupting the conventional narrative. That was PBN's tagline. We changed it to changing the conversation because we thought we didn't want to be too aggressive. (laughs) But actually, since then, we've changed it back to disrupting the conventional narrative because we want to disrupt the message, but we want to do it in a way like you. We want to be focused on creating value. Because at the end of the day, if we're not creating value in people's lives, if we're not educating, informing, entertaining, inspiring people, we're doing the planet, the future of our species a disservice. And when we're part, if we're partnering with brands or organizations that are at odds with our values, we are really sort of shooting ourselves in the foot, as they say. I'd love to learn a bit about Green Queen's history and how it grew, because obviously you mentioned that you started as a blog. Um, I always laugh when people say to me, oh, I love your blog. How did you go from a blog to a media company? Yeah, very quickly. Um, I realized I didn't want to be a blog and I didn't really want it to be about me. A funny story is that for the first four years, Green Queen did not have my name or my picture on it. I was very private. I guess I just didn't want it to be a cult of personality. Um, I eventually had to change that because I I started be, you know being asked to speak at a lot of events and started kind of down that path and it, it just became impossible not to put my name on it. It felt more honest the bigger it grew to kind of have somebody at the head and say I I'm the editor in chief. I I'm the person who decides all the content and what direction we're going in. So in 2011, October, it went live. It was a blog. Two years later, I made the decision to turn it into a media where we would be doing articles that were not kind of from a first person point of view. Originally, it was about Hong Kong and it was about green living and and healthy living. It It was the health and wellness boom year. So there was definitely a lot of focus on things like smoothies and detox, green juices and and organic you know, that was the the really the, the early days of people really wanting to buy organic vegetables and, and be a little bit more thoughtful about their food choices. And then we moved into bigger food system issues. And I also wanted to move from Hong Kong to, to more Asia because I felt like there were more stories to tell. And there was a need to have this kind of English language media covering more than just Hong Kong. So we expanded in 2016. We obviously made the decision to be the first kind of in Asia to not cover the meat or dairy or seafood industry, not sort of advertise it or promote it, but obviously cover it in terms of the issues. Around that time is when I connected with some of these companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, where 
I immediately felt that there was going to be a huge shift and that these companies were really doing something extremely different from a technology point of view, from the way they, they talked to their audiences, from, from which audiences they were even targeting. Just, I mean, I, I've obviously grown up in Asia, vegan alternatives to meat have been around here longer than anywhere else. So it's not like that part was new, but the texture was just like me. And you could almost not tell if you were focusing and it just felt very different. And so I decided that I wanted to start writing about this because I am a pragmatist and I do believe that these solutions are a huge part of how we're going to get hundreds of millions of people to make a choice that still feels quite unnatural to them, which is to stop eating things like eggs, cheese, meat, seafood. And so, and so we started writing about this industry and, and we moved away from uh, more lifestyle to more news, which is really where my passion is. I'm a bit of a news junkie anyway. And I think that's really when we started coming into our own. Personally, it was also a moment where I gave myself permission to really pursue Green Green because Green Green is always something that I had on the side and always had another business as well which I thought was the more serious business. And exactly because of the use of the word blog that I feel really puts especially women down, it's Eco Warehouse, so the organic trade platform. I, I came from the world of you know finance and real estate and serious kind of industries and media just felt, health and green media just felt very not serious. But I realize now that that's not that I thought that, I was, I was letting other people's views kind of influence me. And so I was belittling what I was doing, but at the same time I was being asked to do TEDx's and I was put in front of, you know, a massive room at Morgan Stanley. And I was be, I was becoming this thought leader, but I kept kind of belittling it. And just as you do when you're a woman and when you're especially in Asia where media is just like not taken seriously as a career at all. And on top of it, I, I chosen a chosen a topic that nobody would, you know, thought was going anywhere. I mean, 10 years ago, nobody thought that the green industry was going to be anything. And I did. Um, and I stand by that. And so now today people are like, Sully, like you were so, Told you so. <laughs> like people are like, how did you know you're a genius? And it's just like, well, yeah, there was a shift. I felt there was a shift. I felt that one day when people knew what I had discovered and that information was absorbed by the masses, there would be this mega shift and, and it, it's happened. But it took a while for me to grow into my confidence of just being like, you know what? Actually, I do. I have this incredible media that is looking at the future of how we're going to live in a world that is going to be hopefully dominated by a better, kinder, more ethical, more conscious impulses. And we're going to be chronicling this right before the pandemic. We decided to, to go global and to really be one of the medias on record for the alternative protein industry, which at that point felt like the most serious and important way to participate in the climate crisis conversation. And then we did. And then now, now that's really where we've ended up. But, but again, we've never lost our values of intersectionality and also just inclusion. I think we, we provide a space for a different kind of person than maybe someone who already knows that they are vegan and that they're committed to this lifestyle, right? And we're also in an area of the world where it is just less prevalent to be vegan and to live an entirely vegan lifestyle, right? Just like it's less prevalent to live an entirely climate conscious dominated lifestyle. So we do provide this kind of more broad, diverse kind of space that people can dip into. But I can tell you that we have converted people 
I can tell you that. Yes. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you about impact, but before we talk about that, I'd love to touch a bit more on what you mentioned um, a few sentences back about being a woman and, and your challenges in that respect. In Asia, women, have, more so than anywhere else, I think, in the world, women are often very culturally, especially in, in parts of Asia, women and men, there's a, there's a sort of big disparity between how women are, um, I want to choose my words very carefully because I don't want to misrepresent the facts, but it's more about how women perceive themselves and how they are allowed, well, they allow themselves, as you mentioned, you use some really interesting words there about allowing yourself, giving yourself permission, because you know, from the outside is, is someone who, you know, presents very masculine. I, I'm, I'm non-binary myself, but I, I obviously was born male and stuff. And I've grown up in a, in a very male dominated world, but I have been very aware, hyper aware of how women in, in this culture are, are not given the permission to be who they want to be. There's always, there's that old sort of cliche of something's broken and the man will say, let me fix it. I'll do it, you know? Uh, and women sort of take a step back um, because they become, women become so conditioned by the culture that they need to take a step back, let the man deal with it. You know, even in the vegan community, in the vegan movement, the vegans are some 86% women, yet at the top of all these organizations, animal rights organizations, food tech companies, it's all men. All men are all dominating the conversation in everywhere. And it is a cultural thing where men step forward and women step back. But I'd love to understand how your revolution within yourself, how has that changed over the years as a woman in business? Because, you know, like with investment, uh, Jenny from the Vegan Women Summit will tell you less than 1.5% of the investment went to women in this country. And I think that was that was half of what it was the year before. How has it been being a woman in business? And have you had challenges? And, and how do you see things changing um, as the years progress? Things are changing. So let's start on a hopeful note. For me, it's been really, really tough. I think less so because I want to step back, but because I think that women who present with male characteristics like ambition, a loud voice, an opinion, a very kind of analytical brain, a, a yearning for building something big are often at a disadvantage in this part of the world. And and you mentioned men being at the top of these organizations because of culture. I, I would argue that no, it's because there are systemic inequalities that mean that men have all the levers, the power levers, the money levers, the access levers, right? And so they're just constantly in their merry-go-round of Lopping helping themselves, up. themselves and getting further. I would say that today I do count a lot of men as big allies. And I've been surprised in the last two years how many men have actually come out and really supported me in big ways and put their money where their mouth is. But before that, I found it incredibly difficult. And I can honestly say that if I were a white male, I would be in a different position, even if I'd made all the same decisions. Just because, well, one, giving myself permission to even believe that media was valuable and important, that comes from absorbing the message that green and lifestyle and, and environmental media is some kind of feminine, not serious endeavor. As to funding, it's so much harder to be funded here if you're a woman. It's, it's a male-dominated society here in Hong Kong, despite what everybody might tell you. I'm also half Indian, and obviously India has one of the worst records in the world for the position of women. And, and we just, we're so far from where we need to be. But I look at Gen Z and I look at, you know, my youngest colleagues and employees and I look at the way things are now and I just think, wow, there's so much progress that, that has been made. Yeah, I allowed myself to be belittled or condescended to or put down or, or excluded in a way that some of the younger women I have the pleasure of knowing would never allow. I am definitely a child of the 90s, and now we are having some serious revision on the 90s and realizing just how badly we treated women in the 90s on, in the public sphere. And that has been a real reckoning for me because I realized just even though I personally am a very strong, opinionated, tough, stoic lady, I absorbed a lot of that messaging 
I really did. So I've got my Asian patriarchal society messaging. I've got my 90s super misogynistic messaging, right? And then you've just got your basic being a woman, you're at a disadvantage. You just are that. The numbers are clear on that. And you're at a disadvantage even if you were given all the funding and everything because I have a child and it is just much harder to be a mom than a working mom, than a working dad, especially when the child is young. You are the one that gives birth. You are the one that has to feed them if you choose to breastfeed. Like it's your body that is living it in a way that the male in this case is not or the other partner there's also all of that to contend with some some really powerful insights there what should men be doing more of to help and support and be allies for women in your view that's that's such a good question and maybe at one i don't spend enough time thinking about i think for me the most important thing is that men really recognize that there's just such a fundamental difference in the starting point. That's always super helpful. I don't want to still be having debates with people about how, well, sexism isn't that bad or, you know, in the, in, in, in the, in the Western world, women have it good. And I, I really want to get to a point where we're all agreed that it really is worse for a woman in business to get funding, to, to hire a team, to be taken seriously, to get media attention, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing you can do as a, as a, as a man is really educate yourself on just like how much harder it is for women just on, in, in so many ways. If you're in your job, I think you should be looking to mentor women that and help them. You know, if you're invited to speak at an event and you see it's all men, maybe you say to the organizer, actually, I'm going to step back let's find a woman who can who can deliver for this particular topic or pushing the organizer to do that themselves if if you still want to participate like things like that like if you are in a position where you can invest money are you making sure that you're really trying to find diverse founders and it's not just about women it's about minorities and diversity of of nationality and ethnicity and 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 gender it's just, it's about making sure that there are many voices at the table and that you are not just going, oh, I'm just going to call my frat brother and I'm just going to give him a leg up because that's just the easy way to do it. But it's hard. There is no perfect way to be a, a, a male ally. And I don't want to put all the, I don't want men to feel completely, you know, overwhelmed that they have to solve the whole problem. But I don't know. I think you know if you're a good person. I think if you're a good person, you're you're somewhat in tune with injustice. Just like you wouldn't want to see a, a dog beaten up, you wouldn't want to see only white men on a panel. Yeah, it is an interesting use of the word attunement. I think that's. I think that is the vital part of the conversation. It's awareness and education. But sometimes when people say, "Tell me what I should be doing," well, it, the burden of the work shouldn't be on women to tell men what to do, really. It should really be what for men to, like you say, educate yourself and then, you know, be the resourceful, intelligent man that you are and and, and help support, bring help bring change. But actually, you've just inspired me. The best suggestion is go talk to women in your life that you love and respect and just hold space for their experience and you will change. And, you know, you often see this with men who have daughters in this generation. They change. Suddenly they realize that the world looks different for their daughter than for them. So, yeah, maybe hold space. You know, maybe in a meeting, if someone asks for your opinion, give the voice to someone else. Speak less. Take up less of the time. That might trigger some people. But in the same way, I, I will liken it to what my dad taught me when I was young was that if I was at a dinner party and I noticed that there were people at the party that were really quiet and not talking, I, as someone who was very comfortable talking in a social, social situation and could easily talk a lot, should go out of my way to draw them out and give them space. And I've always done that. And this has nothing to do with whether they were a male or a female or a 
It's something I was taught from a young age as someone who has a louder voice and who is confident. I have a responsibility to draw out those that are shyer. And I therefore do that in all situations. And that's how men should think about their role. Absolutely. Encouragement is such an important and powerful thing. And I think people often don't realize how much it matters. You know, a smile, uh, a couple of positive words to someone who's struggling. One of my Buddhist teachers always said to me, when you look at the word encouragement, the word courage is within encouragement. It sits within encouragement. You're literally giving someone some of your courage. By giving them words of nourishment and support, you are giving them courage. And that is what a lot of people lack, the courage to speak, the courage to stand up, the courage to step forward. You know, And I, my personal opinion is men need to support women in that because women are just as courageous of, as men, if not more. But we have grown up in a society that conditions us and socializes us to step back, to step down, to be quiet, to not challenge the status quo, because we women, we we as women, they might say, is don't feel that we can, depending on various factors, as you've outlined. And women should be able to take a step forward with that courage. And I think men should be facilitating, supporting that. So I appreciate your, your insights. But looking back over all the things you've done so far, what what do you feel is so far has been one of your most proudest achievements? And that could be anything in your life. What is What do you feel most proud of? I think I feel most proud of the fact that I'm still here and that I'm still coming up with new ideas and that I'm still trying to do more and that I'm not kind of getting beaten down just because one, it's hard not to get beaten down just by how depressing the whole situation is, which we've alluded to many times. Two, it's hard just to to run your own business, that's just hard. And a lot of people give up. Three, it's hard to run a media company with without kind of external funding. I mean, let's face it. I mean, this is a tough gig. So I think for me, I just, I'm proud that I, I, I'm still alive and kicking and not just kind of dialing it in, but but trying to move forward and, and iterate and, and improve and, and grow in different ways. So, yeah. Amazing. When it comes to sort of, you know, this whole conversation and listening to all the different things that you said, you've you've talked a bit about your personal ethos a bit, but what's one thing that you want people to take away from the conversation we've had today? That it's all connected, you know, all of this. It's so connected. The kindness and the low waste and the the plant-based life and the secondhand life and it's all connected. It's all part of the same kind of raise and rise in consciousness. It's a very interconnected world. All thing, all things exist under what the Buddhists call interdependent originality, that there is nothing on earth that isn't connected to something else. Even the smallest grain of sand came from something else and that all things are one, which obviously we could go into a lots of deep and spiritual uh, discussions there, that, but maybe we'll do that on, our, on a part two. But an hour has absolutely flown by and I love talking to you and I can't wait to do another episode because there's tons more for us to talk about. We couldn't fit it all in in the first hour. So we can do, I'd love to do another chat with you in, in the month, weeks and months to come. That's really an honor. And it's just, it's been such an incredible conversation. Normally podcasts are not so dynamic and two-way. I've also learned a lot. And I think there's been a spirituality to the conversation that's been really really wonderful. And I love holding space for these kind of conversations. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. Um, If you were stuck on a desert island, and it was just you and a pig, obviously, you're not going to eat the pig, (laughs) because you're plant based and vegan. But if I could give you one vegan dish, one music album, and one book, what would you take with you? Okay, vegan dish guacamole. It's just so sad. I'm like, I have an addiction. One book. Oh, that's hard. Okay, the complete works of Shakespeare. At least I'd be entertained all the time. And uh, some music. It doesn't need to be an album in the in the days of Spotify. But yeah, what kind of music artist would you um, take with hello, you? Hello, everything 80s. <laughs> like Journey. Don't stop Guns and Roses. 
super hard rock. <laughs> and I've always wanted to have a pet pig. So that would actually be a dream. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Sonali, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It was a real pleasure to hear a bit of your story and learn more about your adventures in media. I'm looking forward to episode two already. Thank you so much. I'm honored. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, animals, technology, and everything in between. 